Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Now, by the way, uh, um, people are saying to me, why do texts cost 50 cents on the panel when they're 20 cents for every other show? It's because you listen to a premium show. Just joking. Uh, I made a mistake. They cost 20 cents. They do not cost 50 cents, as I said. Now, by the way, a really big response to uh, our snapshot panel poll this afternoon. As you can imagine, do you support a four-year parliamentary term if you've just joined us? Yes or no? Why or why not? Text me 2101. Uh, Yes to a four-year term, says someone, will mean governments won't need to be so short-term focused in policy implementation. Another one here says no to a four-year term. We can vote our ineffective governments quicker. What do you think? Text me. Uh, Results at 20 to 5 this afternoon. But to this first, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon uh, was sworn in today after a formal ceremony in Wellington. He said that after uh, the government's, he said that the government's number one job was to fix the economy. In an interview after, now the incoming finance minister has admitted that New Zealand's world first smoke-free laws have been scrapped to fund tax cuts. Amendments to the Smoke-Free Environments and Regulated Products Act 1990, which underpinned New Zealand's world-first smoke-free laws, will be repealed. The amendments, parts of which are yet to come into force, would create a generation of young Kiwis who would never legally be able to buy cigarettes. It was international news at the time. For example, the BBC in 2021 reported anyone born after 2008 would not be able to buy cigarettes cigarettes or tobacco products in their lifetime. With us is Professor Janet Howick, who is the co-director of Aspire 2025, a University of Otago research team whose members undertake research supporting the government's smoke-free 2025 goal. Professor Howick, welcome to the program. Kia Wallace. Thanks for having me. So... New Zealand's world first smoke-free laws scrapped or uh, proposed to be scrapped. What was your reaction when you first heard this? Look, I was totally shocked. And when I heard that one of the reasons why the the proposal was to repeal them was to fund tax cuts, I thought it's just hard to imagine a more cynical and callous decision. And what we know that smoking rates are much higher among people who are less well off. And this decision means that those people are going to be providing the funding to support tax cuts that better off people are going to enjoy. I think it's incredibly disappointing that the incoming Prime Minister had a chance to show really strong moral leadership and instead what we have is a capitulation to an agenda where the only beneficiaries are going to be tobacco companies. Interesting to see the history, isn't it? You know, uh, 1990. Tell us, explain to us how overall, how successful internationally have our smoking cessation rates been, Janet? Well, look, we're we're waiting for updated figures on current smoking prevalence within Aotearoa, but 
Uh, the data from last year show us that our current uh, daily smoking prevalence is around 8%, um, but that translates to 330,000 people. So it's a, a low percentage, but it's a large number of people. And we also know that smoking prevalence varies a lot by ethnicity and by economic well-being. Um, so, for example, we know that Māori were originally a tobacco-free society exposed to tobacco through colonisation, and that smoking now places a very heavy burden on them and on Pacific peoples where smoking prevalence is actually around 20%. So I think what's also so incredibly disappointing about the new government's agreement is that the measures that have been proposed under our world-leading legislation had very, very strong support from Māori and Pacific leaders who saw them as being really pro-equity measures that were going to bring profound benefits to yeah. their peoples. Let's bring on the panel. I, you've got a bit of history in this because you sort of had a small part to play in this 1998. I think you were saying off air uh, it's got support also from Rishi Sunak, uh, Britain. They're still going to go ahead and copy what uh, New Zealand's been doing? So indeed. So Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, was so inspired by the New Zealand legislation that he said, we're going to have that in the UK. He was told apparently a couple of days ago that New Zealand is now thinking of stepping away from that. And it's really interesting his reaction. He said, well, we're not changing our position. It's the right thing to do. This is a good long-term measure. So, you know, this will actually have reverberations much wider than just the shores of, of, of New Zealand. But just another connection to it, Wallace, is that uh, I actually worked on the legislation in 1990. So I'd been seconded uh, to the um, Deputy Prime Minister's Office, Minister of Health, that was Helen Clark, and we worked on the uh, original smoking legislation. And, and what we worked on was the legislation to ban tobacco advertising. Up to that point, you could advertise freely on air and on sports fields and so on like that. I have to tell you, anyone who's brave enough to put up legislation that actually challenges smoking rates has to be incredibly morally courageous, as Janet says. And, and, and I, I struggle with the moral courage that we've seen today in terms of people stepping away from what was a renowned piece of health policy. I worked in WHO many years later, and they still referred to the New Zealand legislation and how it had inspired and given courage to other countries that you could, in fact, yeah. do these things. Stay there, Janet. Let's bring Alexia in. Yeah, really interesting. Remember when they banned smoking from pubs and suddenly you could go to the pub and you didn't stink like a, you know, cigarette factory afterwards. Janet, was that a big that was that a big step up and would this have legislation planned to come in next year, would that have been another big step up? Yeah, I mean, it certainly was a big step when um, bars and restaurants were made smoke-free areas. And again, I think we had a very brave politician, Steve Chadwick, who championed that legislation through and uh, probably at some high personal cost uh, to herself as well. And you're absolutely right to say that the legislation that was going to start to be introduced uh, next year with the retail reduction strategy, uh, it would have been absolutely profound. And I think, um, although I'm a very strong supporter of the smoke regeneration policy that we've been talking about, the thing I'm most concerned about with the proposed repealing of the legislation uh, and the coalition agreements is that they propose removing the denicotinisation policy. And that is the policy that we know was going to bring about rapid reductions in smoking. And we know that from randomised control trials that have been undertaken and 
from modelling that's been done using the results from those those trials. And I think it's really telling that Dr Shane Navriti strongly supported this denicotinisation measure when he was talking to the legislation and parliament. In fact, he argued that it should be introduced before anything else. Um, so, I mean, he must be absolutely appalled at Luxon's decision. Uh, he's a doctor himself, and he would know that these proposals are just completely inconsistent with the, the evidence. I just want to sort of come back to what, uh, or bring in what um, well, Prime Minister Chris Luxon was saying. He's saying, look, the issue, it's, it's about pragmatics. He's saying this would, if it goes ahead, it will provide a huge growth in the black market and an untaxed black market for cigarettes. Does he not have a point? You'll just create a massive uh, black market for cigarettes here, Janet. Look, uh, I mean, I'm just shocked that he can be so completely out of touch with the evidence. And these comments simply don't reflect what we know from research. I mean, they just reflect the lame arguments that tobacco companies peddle. And there are lots of studies that show why Luxon is simply wrong. And they include studies that we've run here in Aotearoa. Uh, we've undertaken pack collection studies, investigating the number of foreign packs. We know that they've stayed very stable over time, even during periods of policy innovation, when tobacco companies were arguing that we were going to see a rise in illicit trade. And we've also done in-depth work with people who smoke. And what we've found is that most of them actually don't want to access black market tobacco because they're worried about engaging with criminals and because they're worried about what that, what no. else might be in that product. No, Crook wants there, Chris. Janet, um, the government has, or new government, has said that it's still committed to reducing smoking rates. It's ruled out um, this new policy. What could they possibly do to actually reduce smoking rates? I'm thinking here both va- vaping as well as uh, ordinary smoking, for want of a better word. What other policy initiatives might they be able to tap into? Um, Well, look, the things that they've said that they're going to consider are actually things that I don't think are going to be very effective. So they've proposed that they'll be doing more um, or looking at doing more mass media campaigns. We know that those sorts of campaigns are very effective when they're introduced to support strong policy. But as measures in their own right, they tend to have less impact. So I think that the best thing that the government can do is uh, is to show some strong leadership um, to look at the research evidence, and we're happy to talk with, with Mr Luxon about that, so he understands it more more than he appears to at the moment. And then I think he's got to accept that he's made a really terrible error, and he's got to show the moral courage to put it right. All right, we'll see what happens in this space. It's certainly been a big issue in the last 24 hours, hasn't it? Professor Janet Hoek there, uh, the co-director of Aspire. 2025 uh, Otago University. 19 past four of the panel. Uh, look, a, a really big response to this. Keep that feedback coming on this. Christopher Luxon officially being sworn in as New Zealand's 42nd Prime Minister following a karakia and the national anthem. Luxon confirmed to the Governor-General he had the confidence to form a government. Many issues and policies brewing, uh, including a, a big constitutional one. Nationals, uh, well, Chris Luxon 
Johnson has promised New Zealand First and Act to introduce legislation on a referendum to extend the parliamentary term to four years. Winston Peters, he wanted it done at this year's election, saying in August that the current three-year term was too short. So what is the case for a four-year term as opposed to a three-year term? We're doing a snap panel poll, yes or no, to a four-year term. 2101 texts cost 20 cents. Results at 4.40 with us is Graham Ejler, a lawyer with an interest in electoral issues, and he's written on this in the past. Kia ora, Graham. Kia ora, Mollis. So the concept was put to the public twice before, right? Nine, one in 1967 and in 1990, heavily voted down both times. We're doing a panel poll. Will it change this time round? Um, what what do you make of this? Where do you err on this? I. Generally, I think err in favour of the three-year term. I think if we were having a bigger discussion about a load of other constitutional issues, about the role of Parliament, select committees, written constitution, all the things that maybe we don't even want to discuss, if it was if it was grouped in with a, a wider variety of changes, I think that could be one thing that we'd put in and would change something else somewhere to, to take account of the fact that we're removing power from voters in one area. We might give it to them in another um, but if it's just, you know, three years or four years and we're not looking at changing anything else, um, then, you know, I, I sort of favour the status quo. Why, um, why are you an outlier, Graham? New Zealand has one of the shortest parliamentary terms in the world. Of the 190 countries of parliaments, 103 have five-year terms, 74 have four-year terms, nine governments have three-year terms. We're an outlier. It's, well, one of the reasons I'm an outlier on this is that New Zealand is an outlier on all the other things. You know, if you look at all those other countries, they have, you know, they might have a president who's got a veto power. They might have state governments or strong local governments. You go to Australia, which, you know, federally has a three-year term. You know, education policy is mostly a state matter. In New Zealand, just about everything is run through parliament. And parliament is controlled entirely by the government. We don't have states. We don't have um, strong select committees. We don't have um, we don't have citizens-initiated referendum that are binding. We don't have a written constitution. We don't have you know a bill of rights which can, we can use to sort of control the government if it's doing something wrong uh, in with parliamentary legislation. You know, and all those things where we have a decision: uh, do we favour the voters or parliament? Do we favour the parliament or government? Every time, in all of those cases, we said, uh, "Let's give government power and not parliament. Let's right. give parliament power and not voters." And the only one, you know, all those little things: should we have states? Should we have a second, an upper house? You know, a lot of these countries, you know. New Zealand, if the government wants to pass a bill next week, it can do it in a day. All right, well, let's go. We've got a panel with us. We're probably going to see that. Uh, They're going to repeal fair pay agreements before Christmas. And a lot of other countries, something like that couldn't happen because the new government could do that in the House of Representatives, but Australia's got a Senate. Now, Graham, I'm going to let the um, panel jump in because I know you're passionate about this. You're strongly advocating to stay with the three year term. Alexia. So, Graham, as you said, is this about harm minimisation? Is this about a government going a bit rogue, passing something that is bad for the country and they can, you know, it can be turned over in a short space of time? Yes, and yeah, it very, much, it very much is, because the systems that are in place in a lot of other countries that might slow down the government or make them sink or make them just ameliorate a little, those systems, we do not have in New Zealand. 
the legislation. We can't rely on the Senate to slow it down and say, government, are you sure about this? We can't rely on a president to say veto it. It's like you've gone a little too far here. And so a lot of other countries which have longer term have um, other things that can slow the process down or can stop it or can make the government think twice. In New Zealand, the only one we really have is the three-year term. Oh, okay. But, but on the other quickly, hand... Alexia. Yeah, but on the other hand, we do have a reputation as a country for getting things through and making change, positive changes that can be world-leading. Absolutely. And and um, the thing... And I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, and the reason that other countries might... You, know, you might, oh, We need longer term to be able to make these wide changes in, in this you know, sort of thing. You know, New Zealand can do those in the three-year term. You know, we've, you know, we had a massive rewrite of our income tax act that other countries have tried to do and just stopped because it was too hard. And we did it. Not only did we do it, we did it over two governments. They were able to work together. Everyone could agree this is something that needs to be fixed. And so... New Zealand can do all those things in a way that other countries, even with a four-year term, can't because this is the only thing that gets in the way. Okay, with us, Graham, big three-year term advocate, Chris. Graham, a question from me. Um, The argument for going to four-year terms is that you'll get better policy-making, better outcomes, presumably a wealthier, happy nation. In your experience, is there a correlation between parliamentary terms and and the happiness and wealth and good governance of of countries? So, for example, five-year countries versus three-year countries? Or is there no connection at all between the two? There might be a very weak connection. But even, say, if we look at, say, the United Kingdom... You know, they have a five-year term for their parliament, you know, and they got Brexit. You know, you'd think, oh, five-year term, the government can use the five-year term to tamp down, you know, sort of things or to slow the process and work these things through in a measured pace over the course. They've got five years to do it, and they still had Brexit. You know, New Zealand hasn't had something like that, but if five years isn't enough to be able to, you know, do a good job of, you know, getting out of the the European Union... um, you know, how long would they need to be able to have good government? All right, Graham, there we're... are a few states which have extended from three years to four years or changed between three years and four years, a couple of Australian states, I think. And I'm not sure that mm. it made very much of a difference. It's really the other things altogether which, which account for you know, the good quality of legislation or policy. Well, a massive response on this, Graham. So thank you for raising the issue uh, with us. And uh, we look forward to see uh, what happens. That's Graham Edgler, a lawyer with an interest in electoral issues. So it was put twice to the public. Chris um, got heavily voted down both times. I mean, do you are you willing to say uh, either of you which way uh, you'll go? Do you do you, do you think that three year term? Because there's a lot of move, there's a real movement towards a four year term in some quarters, isn't there? Look, I agree, and I'm a yes for a four year term with some pretty heavy qualifications, particularly around making sure that we've got an independent public sector and that we've got really good Official Information Act release protocols and all those kind of things. But um, I predict it's going to lose. And the reason I think it's going to lose is because of the referendum. Because invariably what will happen is, although the referendum is about extending it to a four-year term, invariably, and it happened in 1990, is what happens is that it ends up being a referendum on the government. And so if this government wants to get it through, then I think it would be very, very wise to do it sooner rather than later. Because what will happen is by default it will become a referendum on their performance as a government rather than the wider question of the parliamentary term. All right. Someone says, I've just changed my mind back to three. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Graham uh, swayed a few people, actually, three years without a shadow of a doubt. So three uh, or a four-year parliamentary term, keep those coming. Uh, We have Alexi Russell and Chris Clark this afternoon on the panel. Now, 
We touched on what turned out to be a very rich seam on Friday. I was surprised how just rich it was, so I thought, well, I've got to return to this. And that is the number of people who still carry a pocket knife or a leather man with them every day, all day. If you happen to need a knife to cut your apple, you can do it. If you want to screw in a screw, anytime, anyway. First up is Catherine. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. How are you? Tell us, uh, tell us your story about your Swiss Army knife. I'm very good, thanks, Wallace. I'm delighted you picked up on my text. How amusing! Um, it's tiny. It's uh, it's like the length of your little finger, and um, it's a proper Swiss Army knife. It's got six pieces on it, and uh, it's got nail clippers. That's the best thing. Around the panel, Chris. <laughs> Oh, look, they're wonderful things. I used to carry one with me. It had my own name on it. I no longer do because it got confiscated at airport security. The classic story, I forgot I had it on me, but that didn't uh, cut it with the security people. Do you have pockets, Catherine, on everything that you wear? Do I have pockets? Uh, well, it doesn't live in my pocket. It lives in my girly handbag pouch, you see. Oh, I see. It's so, I was amazed, Catherine, at the amount of people that... Uh, had pocket knives. I mean, so you've been carrying one, what, for for how long? Well, I lived and travelled overseas for years, and so it's essential for the, like, screwing in the thing in your glasses or your scissors. <laughs> and the blade the blade is uh, shorter than your little finger, so it's legal. Um, and I've had, I've had many an argument with a... Um, what are they called? Security dude at the airport. And once, once I had to post it to myself from Korea. <laughs> well, just amazing, Catherine. Thanks for your thanks for your time on the panel. No worries. Good afternoon. So that's Catherine there. Uh, another one here. Ah, oh, Wallace, I'm a florist and carry a, a pocket knife all the time. Never know when I want to cut a slip off a plant in my travels. Uh, another one here. I always have a knife. I've done for four years. And many people I know carry a knife with us is Chris. Welcome, Chris. Hi. What's your pocket knife story? Uh, my story uh, goes back to about 2003 or five. I can't remember exactly when, but at that time I was traveling a lot to Geneva uh, for meetings. And uh, many times I'd sort of browsed around in the Swiss Army knife shop, which is there just before the security zone. And on this occasion, I decided to buy one. Um, when I got to the security scanning thing, uh, I took out my computer, as usual, and put my bag through, and they pulled my Swiss Army knife out. They said, you can't have that on the plane. I said, well, what's going to happen? They said, we're confiscating it. So I, I, I complained because I said, well, there's no signs in the shop to say, to say they won't sell them to people who are flying. He said, well, that's just tough, and he dropped it in a box. And this box was full of Swiss Army knives. So I said, look, you guys are recycling the damn things. This is really not good enough. And you're flying out of Geneva. Flying out of Geneva back to London. Unfair. Yeah, yeah the, home, the home of the Swiss Army knife. The, the Swiss um, security guards are, are well known for their dour attitudes. You know, the Swiss don't have a sense of humour anyway. But, Did you ever um, get it back? No. No. Do you carry a Swiss Army knife with you now, Chris? Yes, I do. I've got two. I've got one in go. my pocket, and I keep one in the car for emergencies. You see, it's what we need, Alexia. Uh, what do you have one on you now? You'd be the sort of person who would, wouldn't you, Alexia? No, I always used to carry a spanner in the car, yeah, in case I needed to, you know, take the battery out, yeah. or, um, or because I used to row, and you know, you always need a spanner to adjust your slide. 
Um, but I think this is as effective as I got. That's it. No. no no pocket knife for you, Kristen. No leather man for you, Not these Chris days. Clark. Not no. since I got mine confiscated. But I did look up. The latest uh, Swiss Army knife has 38 different functions. There you go. You can do That's everything outrageous. with Swiss Army knife. Isn't it brilliant? Things. I'm going to look that up online after this and buy one. Maybe that's my Christmas present. Hey, Chris, kia ora. Thanks for being on the panel. You're welcome. Very good. Um, but a response regarding the smoking laws. Uh, I'm appalled by the proposed repealing of smoke-free laws. My cousin died this year of lung cancer. Uh, 55, caused by smoking. Hooked as a teenager. I have two small children. I was so relieved that their generation would never buy cigarettes. Uh, what has this world uh, come to? Al says, the best gift my husband ever gave me. I love my wee Smith's army knife on my key ring. 